Welcome, everybody, to the Blind Ambition with Jack Kelly. It's Rick Chen from Blind, and today I have Wayne Hugh from Signal Fire. Signal Fire is a data-driven venture capital firm known for being structured like a tech company with the CEO, heads of talent, and go-to-market, plus engineering and tech teams. Half of the team actually have degrees and experience in artificial intelligence or machine learning, and the firm is talent-driven, which makes sense as it originally started as a stealth AI tech recruiting platform before creating a new venture capital model. Wayne, he was a partner at Signal Fire, and he leads the early stage venture fund focused on consumer, emerging technology platform shifts, and industries ready for major shifts in innovation, such as healthcare and fintech. Before joining Signal Fire, Wayne was the global strategy lead for YouTube ads monetization and responsible for the go-to-market strategy for Google's now multi-billion dollar video ads business. Uh, he's also an alumni of Kleiner Perkins. Thanks for coming on the show, Wayne. Thanks for having me, guys. A pleasure. I, That's I, a great background, huh? What a, what a pedigree. <laughs> I, I mean, I hope you don't mind. Like, if we can dig into that pedigree, you know, how does one become a venture capitalist, right? Like, it, it's now a, a hot job that everyone wants to get into, and, and I'd love to pick your brain there. Yeah, happy to. I, I think the answer's changed a lot since when I first started in venture. Back then, there was no playbook whatsoever. And so one of the things that, that I and many others had to do is, um, is, is volunteer for these funds and do projects kind of for free in areas where um, maybe you had some expertise that lined up with areas that the firm wanted to invest in. And so you know, I, um, I had done work um, uh, in education uh, as in as a, an administrator for a CCC, which is like a, a large post-secondary school set of schools in, in Chicago. And, um, and I offered to do um, basically a free research for Bessemer back in the day uh, when they were just starting to, to build up a bit of their, their ed tech portfolio. Um, that's, um, I, I did something similar with Kleiner too, where I had done some work in McKinsey Global Institute on the future of energy demand. And they were doing a lot of clean tech investing at the time. This is sort of like clean tech investing wave one before kind of the resurgence over the last year or two. And they, um, there's, of course, there was a very large um, energy macro component to a lot of the investments they're making, which um, intersected really well with the research I'd done. Um, and a lot of the partners, I think, had, had read some of the research that uh, I helped author. So that was, that was kind of my entry point into venture back then. And I would say that, you know, that's that's probably fairly representative because, um, you know, most of these funds, they they were just hiring, um, starting to hire, you know, one or two junior people, um, not doing job postings, um, you know, by and large. Uh, and so there was a lot of serendipity and kind of networking, um, you know, volunteering uh, to kind of get your foot in the door back in the early days. I think now you have funds that are so large, you know, with like 20 billion under management or more that they operate a little bit more like banks where they have kind of a recruiting process. They may come to different campuses and, um, and hire a large number of people out of consulting or you know, banks, just like um, other large employers do. So, so I think that's changed a lot. Um, there still is, if you're, if you're interested in seed and very early stage investing, I think it's still a little bit kind of old school, like in the way that I mentioned, but certainly on kind of like the late stage investing side, which has just exploded, you know, over the last, um, you know, five, 10 years or so, uh, that's become much more institutionalized. And, and what is an early stage, like, 
entry level position at a venture capital firm look like? Is it research? Are you a scout looking for companies? Um, are, are you actually, you know, sitting in on the investor meetings or, or pitch meetings? Yeah, it it depends a lot on the firm. I would say for early stage, by which I, I define like um, a lot of seed stage, series A investing, series B is generally kind of the where I, I personally would cut off, um, you're starting to get in kind of growth territory. For those funds, a lot of it is um, a lot of it is uh, is trying to build networks so that you can source new companies for the firm. You know, I would say that um, if you are joining a very large growth-oriented fund, you um, you're going to be doing um, a lot of sourcing as well. But there's a lot more time that you can spend in diligence in companies, um, given that at that stage, companies um, you know there's a lot more to there's a lot more meat to kind of um, you know dig into as it relates to um, the company's financials, the market history, you know, their, their competition, et cetera. Um, and so I think that's why, you know, if you, if you do have like a year or two of banking or consulting experience, late stage tends to be um, a more logical entry point versus, you know, just jumping right into early stage um, where, you know, a lot of cases you're just investing in like two people and a dog, um, you know, a PowerPoint idea. And that is, um, that's something that's a little bit uh, more intuition-based, a little bit more network-based, and something that um, you know one needs to kind of build up over time. How is it now? Because it seems that the VC space was on fire. Every time you'd look, you'd see a new unicorn company pop up. And now you're seeing the opposite. You're seeing you know, probably more layoffs in the tech space in the crypto space and the startup space than even in, in other places. Is, is there a pause now in the VC world or how, how's it going? Yeah, VC, um, for sure, it's been, it's been shaken by what's happened um, in, the, in the public markets. What I'd say is um, you had, there's a few things going on. Number one, you had a number of um, really aggressive crossover funds like KOTU, D1, Tiger, et cetera, that came in and um, deployed you know, unheard of amounts of capital into late stage investing. And a lot of those folks have been hammered on the public market side, which has then kind of um, spilled over into their private markets investing. Uh, and so a lot of those folks have paired back in, um, in, uh, in, a, in a really big way. And I think that has, um, that has carry on effects kind of down the stack into you know, um, from kind of like pre-IPO, very late stage into series B, series A and seed and so forth. Um, I would say the shocks get um, get less and less acute, if you will, the farther away you get from kind of late stage and public markets investing, such that, you know, at the, um, the, the very late stages, you may have um, what feels like a complete, um, a complete freeze, uh, you know, in investing at the very late stages. Um, I would say at the series A and series B, you definitely still see a reduction in activity, but it's still getting done. So, you know, call it like a 30, 50% reduction in activity. And then by the time you get to the seed stage, that is the least impacted. Uh, I'd say activity has still fallen, you know, maybe, I don't know, 10, 20% or so, but it's still, I mean, there's still plenty of great founders, you know, getting seed money. Now, with interest rates rising, you know, so Powell wants <clears throat> to beat inflation, cool down the economy, higher interest rates. D 
does that have an impact on on money raising for the VC firms where you can't get yes. that cheap capital? Yes, a hundred percent. I think you're going to see a lot of, especially the newer funds who haven't had time to build a track record yet. Those funds, if they have to come back to raise in the next year or two, assuming the market is still depressed, they're going to have a really hard time uh, fundraising. I think we saw, I, I can't remember how many, there's something like, um, you know, 500 new funds in the last uh, year or so. Um, those, uh, you know, you're not going to see those numbers again. Well, 500, just, long, just long compare like 500 last year compared to, let's say, pre-COVID, pre like what's, do you know offhand, like how, how much it increased? Because 500 seems like a lot. I don't know the space, but it does seem, <laughs> right? Rick, it seems like a lot. I don't know offhand, but it's, um, it, it's felt to me like a five or 10x explosion in the number yeah. of new funds since I started wow. in the industry. Wow. For sure. Yeah. So those funds, I, you know, I think um, there's going to be a flight to quality at times like this. Um, LPs are going to be slowing down their deployment into the funds and kind of digesting the um, the commitments that they've made because they've been pushed to, to put so much into venture um, and pressure to do so. Uh, you know, as, as like a lot of these tier one funds have all fundraised at a very similar time. And a lot of the LPs have been worried about losing their seat at the table if they didn't commit, right? And so they committed a lot of their funding in a very short period of time. And they're very happy to kind of, um, you know, uh, uh, let that kind of sit for, for a year or two uh, before they can, you know, start kind of um, making new commitments. So it's going to be, um, it's going to be a, a pretty tricky time for, for fundraising in the, in the VC world, for sure. Um, that said, we have, we still have record, you know, record levels of, of funds, uh, funding sitting on the sidelines right now, right? With like Lightspeed, I think, announcing a multi-billionaire fund, I think, Andreessen, announcing like an almost $10 billion fund somewhere in that scope. Well, speaking um, of Teresa, how, how are they, like, how are they putting money in Ad, uh, Adam Newman from WeWork? Another like 350. It's like, all right, you guys just went crazy. And, but yeah, take another 350 million. How, dude, how does it work in that environment? Because like in corporate America, it doesn't really work that way. Like, Hey, Rick and Jack, you guys just like went nuts with the money we gave you. So we're not going to give you money anymore. But the VC is like, yeah, here you go. Take it. What's like? Can you can you kind of explain like what's what goes on behind the scenes? Yeah, I can try. I I'm going to caveat that and say like that is the <laughs> that's as far away from what I do as possible. Yeah. Like I'm generally doing like a million or two into right. into seed stage companies. Um, but if I can kind of try to get into their mindset, um, number one, real estate is an absolutely enormous market. You could argue one of the you know one of the maybe two or three biggest markets. Um, in the U.S. by kind of GDP, and it is still very much broken. So, to the extent that you can build companies there, outcomes should be um, should be enormous. And when that's the case, a lot of times you can justify pretty massive entry prices. Um, you know, if the if you can really build the next Google or Facebook or, or you know trillion dollar company, um, that's number one. Number two, you know, um, on Adam himself. I think uh, a lot of people, there's a lot of, um, you know, a lot of publicity he's gotten around his behavior, his mismanagement of the company, uh, the fact that he's taken a lot of money out of WeWork before it kind of crashed and so forth. But, um, you know, he, he, did, he did invent a new category, um, sort of a new consumer behavior, right? He's the first to kind of introduce brand 
into kind of this this notion of kind of fractional commercial space. And uh, it solved a real need for for a lot of people, a lot of small businesses, a lot of people who are looking for you know a place to a place to work. Um, and there's no question that Silicon Valley is littered with um, people who um, who uh, have it exhibited at times questionable behavior. Let's put it that way, um, for the sake of innovation. You know, whether it's Travis Kalanick, whether it's you know um, Zuckerberg, whether it's like Mark Andreessen himself. You know, at Netscape, I'm sure there, um, or or like um, a Sean Parker, right? Um, you know, who um, who eventually kind of referred the Facebook deal to to Peter Thiel. You know, this this is um, this is the world of um, of innovators and rule breakers in a lot of cases, and sometimes um, you know it takes a little bit of that to to really um, um, you know really take these the kind of extreme risks you need to build the next Google. So that's um, and then number three is uh. They raised, don't quote me the exact, I think it was like a $9 billion fund or something like that, Andreessen. And so $350 million um, in the grand scope of things is actually a small part of their overall fund. Mm. So don't get me wrong, this is not, this is not the style of investing I do, uh, but those are kind of the three reasons I could you know, imagine that um, uh, would justify for, for somebody like a you know, fund like Andreessen to make investments like this. So what, what do you do? Like, how is your specialty? How does it differ? Yeah, we, um, we, um, signal fire is focused on, on seed early stage investing, which, um, uh, is, you know, for our fund size, we're deploying out of a 200 million dollar seed focus fund right now. Um, <laughs> obviously a $350 million check would be more than <laughs> fund. Uh, so we, our average check size would be, I think, you know, roughly in the one to $2 million range. Um, you know, going up to like four to five. And, um, you know, at the end of the day, our strategy is to, is, um, you know, is, is backing amazing founders going after enormous visions, um, but um, hopefully not in areas that are as capital intensive as, you know, real estate where, you know, somebody like an Adam Newman needs to buy, you know, uh, maybe he needs 350 million to buy that much property, you know, to, to scale whatever he's doing. Um, we're generally not doing investments of that sort. Um, and then I would say the broader strategy for Signal Fire is, you know, given we are a tech company that has built an engineering team, um, shipping products that actually help our founders, we, we tend to have a, a really strong bias for data-driven companies, very technical companies, um, builders who, you know, like us, um, often using similar tech stacks as us, maybe employing a very similar model to changing an industry like Signal Fire is doing within venture capital. That makes sense. I mean, your focus on the firm's focus on financial technology, real estate, these are industries that badly need your help, badly need technology, badly need uh, some kind of innovation. Um, I, I, I kind of want to dig into the investment thesis there, right? Uh, are, are there any kind of portfolio companies that you've uh, invested in recently that you think are particularly exciting that might be a good preview for the blind community of kind of trending industries or, or trending companies? Yeah, yeah. One of um, the last publicly announced investment that that uh, that we made was a company called HealthNote, which is um, in the um, it's it's an awesome company that's going after the physician burnout epidemic. If you, if you have doctor friends and you talk to them, all of them will tell you how much they hate their EMR. 
and how much of a time sink note-taking is. Uh, and so this company is, um, they've built a patient intake workflow where um, instead of just asking patients just for their medical history and other kind of basic information you need for medical billing, they're, they're asking clinically relevant questions, right? Like, why are you coming into, into the doctor's office? And then based on your response, actually, um, you know, making uh, uh, dynamic kind of follow-up questions to dig into, you know, what's actually going on with you um, in the same way that a doctor would. And as you can imagine, that's much trickier and much more difficult to instrument depending on the specialty and exactly, um, and the hospital system and so forth. Uh, but once they've gone through that work, they can auto-populate notes directly into the clinician workflow on the EMR side, um, which is very much, um, you know, kind of like that one-to-one -one, um, uh, time savings that, you know, that, uh, that doctors are, you know, talking about. And that is, um, that's a massive practitioner enablement piece that we were really excited, you know, to, to see somebody actually solving. Um, it's, as you can imagine, it's, it's like front and center for, um, for all of these areas where you have such massive kind of supply shortages on the clinician side, uh, massive, um, you know, burnout epidemic, as, as I mentioned. And it's also extremely strategic for all of these massive EM, EMRs and EHRs, which um, are competing for, you know, in many cases, hundreds of millions of dollars of accounts for like these massive, you know, uh, these massive providers. And the differentiator in many cases is clinician feedback because, you know, it's just, um, uh, they, they, they just hate all these systems so, so much. Um, and so this is, um, you know, that's, I think a, an area that we, um, that we really, uh, we're really interested in. We really got an inside look through some of our team members, which includes, you know, um, uh, venture partner, Eric Larson, who's chief strategy officer at United Health. Um, so he has kind of a window into, you know, how this is thought of at the biggest, you know, medical providers in, uh, in the U.S. And, um, uh, and uh, folks like David Clements, um, who we brought on as a venture partner on our team, who, um, uh, who sold uh, uh, an EHR business himself for, for multiple billions of dollars. Uh, so that's, that's what we're excited about. We, um, we're generally very uh, excited about healthcare um, over the economic cycle. It's one of these areas that's very kind of, um, recession proof and um and we think you know is um is is probably uh is going to undergo kind of a massive transformation over the next few years i mean would your recommendation be to technologists that are concerned about the recession they're seeing once high flying companies like these bitcoin web3 cryptocurrency companies like coinbase and and robinhood sort of struggle right now uh should they kind of hop into these quote unquote, like more uh, recession proof or even boring, some would say industries right now? Yeah, in terms of um, uh, investing on the private market side, which, you know, I, that's the, the only part I'll comment on. Yes, I, I think um, that's been our tack for sure is to not invest in capital intensive industries at the moment um, or capital intensive business models uh, in sectors that are likely to have their uh, and customer base impacted very heavily. Um, and um, um, and instead go for areas like healthcare, like cybersecurity, et cetera, where you tend to see very, um, very consistent demand through downturns, or um, in many cases, actually uh, an increase in demand. 
Got it. So the healthcare in a pandemic, that would make sense in terms of increase in demand, right? Yes. Yeah, hundred percent. Like an area, um, I'll, I'll highlight one area specifically in in healthcare, uh, mental health. Right during times like this where it's very stressful, I think uh, demand grew two hundred percent during the pandemic, and at wow. the same time, supply on the clinician side, you know, grew very, very, you know, uh, very, very uh, slowly. I think fifty five percent of all U.S. counties don't have a licensed behavioral therapist. Wow. Yeah. So that's an area. Those are areas in um, in healthcare, and there are other sectors as well where um, if you can if you can um, if you can corner um, clinician supply or uh, help enable clinicians to be much more productive, I think you can have a huge impact. You know, I, I, I'm kind of curious. Um... How does one collect these kind of insights about these industries that uh, you, you might not have any clue in, right? So say you're an engineer, you're a technologist, uh, you're working at a startup, maybe even got laid off. Um, how do you discover these insights? Like, oh, health, healthcare could actually be really booming or, um, you know, mental health as a, a, a category um, has this incredible need that I, I can perhaps hop in as a technologist and, and help optimize or or make more efficient. Yeah, yeah. I think um, venture capitalists. I think one of the the things people are surprised to learn about it is um, uh, a lot of VCs spend about three to four hours a day reading, just consuming information from huh. you know newsletters and um, um, other online sources and so forth. The um, and so I think that that that's a huge piece of it is filtering across a lot of that, which is a lot of it is noise, but being able to kind of like cherry pick um, interesting tidbits, uh, you know, for further inquiry, I think that's, that's one piece of it. And the second is, you know, we have the privilege of learning from the smartest people out there who are on the bleeding edges of learning about up and coming markets and so forth. And that's the founders, right? And so if you're meeting with tons of founders, um, um, who are really the ones, you know, boost on the ground, uh, learning a lot of these core insights, uh, you know, you, you're in the privileged position of being able to aggregate a lot of those insights. I mean, are there any other things that people might not know about venture capital as a career? You know, is, how's the total compensation? Is it, is it quite high? Is it one of the lucrative things that we, we all kind of expect or assume? Uh, within finance? Yeah, there's a lot of myths about venture capital. And I think one of the biggest is that, um, you know, there's the image of the the VC on a yacht during the summer kind of, you know, um, uh, you know, spending all their, or, you know, buying buying wine yards in Sonoma and relaxing while kind of like the, the founders are, are hard at work. And, um, and it is true. I like, in my opinion, like nobody works harder than founders, but VC in general is actually, um, if you are uh, a new emerging fund manager getting in the business, it's it is it's probably the worst job, um, you know, yeah. from a, from a from a compensation money, uh, you know, financial standpoint, versus anything else in finance, whether it's you know um, private equity, hedge funds, uh, working investment banking, or what have you. And um, the reason is um, number one, the fund sizes are so much smaller, right? If you're starting off, you raise like a ten million dollar fund. Uh, your typical, you know, on average, you're going to draw a 2% management fee. That's 200K, 
right? You can't, and you're going to have back office support costs, all sort of administrative costs. You really can't support much on that. Um, at the second reason is, um, you know, even if you start to raise successfully, successively larger funds, uh, there's something called a GP commit, which means that you have to put in, you know, as a show of faith, uh, a show of strength, you have to put in at least 1% of the fund yourself um, as a partner. And so if you raised, you know, $50 million fund, you, you'd have to make good for, you know, call it 500K. Um, in the context of, like I mentioned, you know, only being able to pay yourself, you know, I guess for a, a $50 million fund, call it like $2 million for staff fees, administrative costs, et cetera. There's really not much left over, uh, if at all. And in fact, if you are on this path, in many cases, as a partner at one of these firms, um, you venture capital might be like a negative cash sink. For you before you actually make any money on the back end on the carry which is the upside with uh, associated with um, financing startups that's really where the big money is but if you're funding companies at the seed stage it can take 10 to 15 years for companies to go public so in the meantime during that decade you might be sinking a lot of money you know into your funds before you ultimately get that big payoff so you know that's to say like there, there's plenty of money in venture. Lots of folks who are successful can make a, a ton of money, no doubt. But in many cases, especially for kind of the little guys, emerging fund managers, it is, um, it's one of the least lucrative uh, uh, jobs financially uh, for quite some time. That has to be brutal. So if you're in that seat and you're a year, two years, three years, five years, grinding it out, not making money, putting in your own money, waiting for something to hit and maybe it will, maybe it won't. That's a tough life, right? That's like, you're just living. It's almost like you're gambling big time, hoping to get that big score. Yeah. Yeah. There is, um, I think you, certainly for like emerging seed managers, you have to be comfortable with risk-taking <laughs> for sure. So, but what do they do in the meantime? Do you have to have this? Do you try to have an Uber and make ends meet while you're while you're in VC, or like, or you just have to come into it having money to say, okay, I don't need that cash flow right now. I have enough in the bank, and I can live off my savings. And this way, I could take that big risk to get that big reward. Is that yeah. is that what happens? Yeah, most um, at least historically, most new funds were started by experienced operators. Who kind of you know they probably have have a war chest built up. So from, they have enough money. It's, from it's Google, now yeah, being yeah. somewhere in senior at Google or a successful yeah. founder or what have you. Um, I would say though that that creates a barrier such that new fund manager. It's very hard for like very young people, um, certain, especially you know underrepresented folks within tech to start mm -hmm. funds. No question. Mm -hmm. There 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 have been folks who've gotten around it by. Um, uh, by not making a full GP commit um, in agreement with their LPs, you know, so at least they're not like sinking their own cash, the the 1% into these funds. Um, or, you know, I think that, I think that there are banks that can help with that too. Um, I think SVB may be able to kind of like give you a loan to help you out with that. But nonetheless, it's, um, you know, no question. It's, uh, it, it, it's a tough place to be. Now that said, you're probably not going to raise funds from LPs as well, unless you have some sort of track record. So it's it's unlikely you would you you'd be able to do you know um, to get the fund off the ground in the first place anyways you know if you're if you're like super young you you haven't really done a whole lot yet. Got it. Yeah, I'm sorry. Go ahead, Rick. 
no so so i imagine that's why you're seeing some of these like early venture capitalists kind of start as almost alumni networks right so it'll be uh, airbnb folks investing in other folks that used to work at airbnb or or, or stripe or, or uber etc mm-hmm. um, or, or perhaps you you kind of have that built-in network almost like a cheating effect of- yeah yeah if you're raising a fund it's a little bit like um you know raising money from vcs as a startup which is to say you need to have um you need to have like a, a unique insight and uh, and a fantastic team um and in those cases, you know, at least uh, for Airbnb and other alumni networks, you're at least coming in with like a pre-baked network that can source you deals, right? Some unfair advantage because, you know, as we mentioned, if there are hundreds of new funds being started, you know, last year, um, you know, you, you got to have some way to stand out. Got it. So Wayne, is for last year, it seemed from the outsider perspective that venture capitalists would choose a sector and just throw gobs of money at it to try to just kind of own that piece and then kind of rinse and repeat and then go to another sector, another sector, another sector. Is that, is that my imagination or is that kind of the thought process that, that was going on? Yeah, this is one of the, the funny things of venture, which is um, I think everybody's taught to be a first principal investor. You know, that's the only way you may, way you can make money is, um, is uh, you know, being right and seeing things before other people, right? Because as soon as it becomes consensus, you know, all your returns get arbitraged away. Everybody, you know, deals get bid up to, to the market and um, your, your returns are gone. So that is, um, that's something that an axiom that, that keeps getting passed around. But in practice, there's a lot of herd following mentality and behavior. Uh, and I think... You know, part of it is, um, uh, number one, this is just such an information sparse environment. When you're investing in companies that it's just an idea, a couple people, you know, a thesis, there's just not a lot to hang your hat on. And it's really hard to avoid um, the social validation of tons of top tier funds trying to get into this investment, All right? And um, and certainly on a sh- you know, on a short time frame, um, that seems to be the the uh, the clearest predictor of success is how much money other top tier VCs are putting on the company. Like I mentioned, it can take a decade or more for a company to actually exit, go public, sell, et cetera. And, um, and so you're looking for any sort of feedback signal that a company is doing well before that. And, um, you know, the, the clearest one that you can see, at least externally, is whether or not smart, big brand name VCs are pumping a bunch of money into companies. So I think that tends to reinforce to other people in the ecosystem to kind of try to, you know, chase the, the same deals. Um, that's, you know, that's, that's one piece of it. The other piece I would say is, um, you know, I actually think that there, um, <laughs> there's probably a few like structural reasons that we would read about a lot of similar companies and spaces getting funding at the same time. Uh, and that's, you know, a lot of these companies tend to announce um, around the same time. You know, if you see one of your competitors announce like a massive round, I think some of these other companies tend to do, you know, come out of the woodworks uh, and announce their fundings as well. And, um, and it also encourages a lot of copycat 
startups to, to, to come up. If you see like a bunch of like massive companies getting tons of funding in this area and you're like, I could do something like that too. Or like, I have a, I, I think, you know, I, I think I could build a, a similar business maybe with a different approach. Um, it tends to spawn a lot of other companies in those spaces, uh, which of course get funded by the hundreds of new funds out there. Um, so, you know, I think um, there's, there's probably a bunch of reasons why, you know, this, this happens, even though in practice, um, what you're trained to do as a venture investor is to be a first principle thinker and be very independent from what other people are, you know, other, other people are it, thinking. And about. it seems it's, it's distorted. It went the opposite. It became FOMO, right? It's like, okay, you know, all the big VCs are in this, you know, investing in X. Like, holy shit, I got to get an X. I got, I, I'm going to miss out. I don't want to be the one where they say, oh, how did you do an X company? I'm like, oh, I didn't get in or I didn't get yeah. involved. So it's almost like, but it doesn't mean it's a good investment. It just means like they're following the herd to go into this place and just putting a lot of money and just, just, you know, pouring a lot of money in there. And can't that also be a problem? If let's say you put in, you know, 100, 200 million to this company, they really just have an idea isn't that problematic too? Like, how do you, how do you not just waste it? Because I wonder this, tell me if this makes sense, Rick, wait, could it be also possible with the layoffs that we're seeing in the tech sector of startup is that, you know, you'll get a hundred million, 200 million, crazy amounts of money. So what do you do? You hire people because you have all that cash and you're not really sure what you're doing with it. And, you know, in a different kind of environment, you're going to be more careful what you're going to do, but it's easy. Hey, all right, we got this you know, we got a mountain of cash, let's, let's keep hiring. And then when the things start getting a little cold, a little bad, they look around and go like, we, what, like, what is everybody doing here? Do we really need it? And it just becomes easy to let them go. Is yeah. that from an, like someone who's from the outside looking in, is that kind of what happens? Yeah, there's no question that um, the logical thing to do as a business is to, to really nail it before you scale it, so to speak. Or you want to find product market. You want to make sure you've got you're building something that that people want, um, and you've got like a good mo go to market motion to sell it before you start hiring a bunch of people and just you know and and start scaling a you know really expensive org. Uh, because a lot of these companies um, tended to raise ahead of their skis. Um, you know, I'll point to a lot of like the SoftBank rounds and so on and so forth. A lot of these comp you know the, the companies were pressured to build their organizations and spend money ahead of where um, the reality of the business was, you know, um, given their stage. And that's a very dangerous place to be because now you have all that headcount, all that cost, and, um, and uh, you know, you don't have the fundamentals to support that. Uh, that can be, um, you know, and I think that's when you look at a lot of the, the biggest, um, the biggest, uh, you know, um, company blowups over the last few years, I think that that's, uh, that's a situation that, that many of them, those companies unfortunately felt um, they were in. Um, so yeah, no, no question. There are some businesses that are inherently very capital intensive out of the gates, right? Think of like deep tech companies that need to invest tens or hundreds of millions into research before they can actually, you know, get a product out the door, a quantum computing company, um, you know, or maybe even a capital intensive business that needs to buy assets before they can actually get to market like um, like Adam Newman's new company, you know, maybe that's just right. inherent in the business. So, you know, there's a distinction, I guess, there's, there's a couple kinds of businesses, some that really do require that money, um, just to just to get a product out the door. Um, not the kind of businesses we're generally investing in, because that's very risky, in my opinion. But, um, uh, but there is a, a second class of businesses like, 
like you mentioned, that probably didn't need to spend that much money to actually test the market and develop, um, you know, develop something that um, that customers would want um, before before Absolutely. they scale up. Wait, dude, it drives me crazy because I, I get these pitches and a lot of times I write about these companies and I'm thinking, you know what, give me a quarter of that money and I can make this work. You don't need all that money. What are you doing? You're just getting out of control. And then when I'll see resumes, when people either are leaving or been downsized and you're looking at their resume like, this person wasn't necessary. I'm sure there's a great person, a smart person as a human being, but given where they are, in terms of their maturity of a company. I'm like, you really didn't need, you don't need that person to do this. It was just almost like the manager wants to pat their own ego and have a whole little staff to make themselves look important. So they're gonna hire a whole cadre of folks who are you know, gonna be running around doing things, but it's not really moving the ball forward. At least again, this is looking from the outside. And then when you were talking about you know, kind of the follow effect, I think I may have written three pieces for Forbes about uh, the Super Bowl and how these, you know, work uh, workplace kind of companies were investing like five million dollars to be, you know, in the Super Bowl for like a thirty second spot. And like I'll tell these guys, dude, what are you doing? Like you like save the money for a rainy day, you know? Maybe I'm just like a cheap old fashioned guy. I'm like, like I get it, you want to be in the Super Bowl, but what if something goes wrong? that $10 million could help you out. And they're like, I, you don't know what you're talking about. <laughs> you're crazy. Yeah, you, know, <laughs> I, you know, I think it's uh, it's hard for me not to have the same instinct, but yeah. uh, $10 million could be a drop in the bucket for some of these companies, yeah. given their stage, number one. And True. some of the, you know, um, because there's less competition, at least from tech startups, for some of that kind of uh, advertising, you know, like TV advertising, you know, event space advertising, billboards, et cetera. Um, sometimes they can be cheaper, um, you know, much more effective than, than you might think. Um, yeah, like I found I out think that- it's, it's hard to measure. Like that yeah. stuff is very hard to measure. So it's- Well, I, I think I, I just read recently, you know, where in Times Square, they'll have a big billboard with everything on it. I thought it was a whole lot of money, but I forgot a couple of people saying, oh, hey, we rented, it was only this. I'm like, what? I think I want to do that just as a vanity thing to goof around. <laughs> yeah, it really yeah. wasn't that expensive, but you do get a lot of attention. Yeah, yeah. That is, um, I know exactly what you're talking about. And that thing is, um, I think it's on the order, uh, is much, much cheaper than people. Right, would, than you would think it would be, Like right? tens of thousands kind of I thing. I forgot what it was, or, but it was wow. something like, oh, I can, just as a goof, to, 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 to say, Jack Kelly, whatever does this. Like, all right, that's pretty, but the Super Bowl, that's a little different because Super Bowl, yeah, I'm thinking this, yeah. all right, how many, you know, let's say guys are sitting on their couch drinking a beer and saying, hey, I want to know about my workplace productivity software. <laughs> I don't know. Is that, I don't know if that's money well spent and I'm not casting any aspersions on them. I'm not being a jerk. It's just, just trying to kind of put the pieces together and understand how this whole ecosystem works. Yeah. Yeah. You're, I mean, you're right about one thing, which is up until this market crash, um, it has been a growth at all costs mentality mm -hmm. you know, for a startup. And it's, it rots from the head in that, you know, mm -hmm. VCs are the markets are prioritizing growth, right? You, you just look at the enormous growth premiums for companies, you know, raising at 100x revenue, 200x revenue, if you are kind of a high flyer who's growing quickly. And in that kind of environment, you're willing to spend whatever it takes to get to that growth, you know? And so... Uh, I think that encouraged, incentivized a lot of, you know, suboptimal behavior, um, and inefficient spending, yeah. as, as, um, which, which has a lot of carryover effects because like 
you know, lots of people are getting hired, lots are being hired in the businesses that may jobs. So you can see a hangover effect where maybe the companies that were more prudent had a decent raise, have money in the bank. They didn't spend like drunken sailors. You know, they were holding on to it and they could last. And the ones who just like burnt through it and they're going back to, you know, their VCs and saying, hey, we want more. And they're like, um, like Sequoia, you know, put out that letter saying, hey, you know, tighten the belt, buddy. This is going to be tough times. So do you think you're going to have the shakeout where the ones who maybe, what is it like, you know, the, 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 not the tortoise and the hare, but you know, the, the rabbit or whatever, whoever's conservative and stored the, you know, the nuts for the winter, they're okay. But the ones who didn't and spent all their money, they're like, sorry, you guys are out. And maybe they'll just, you know, get their technology acquired and that's it. Do you, do you think this is going to be this kind of play out in the next three to six months? Yes, absolutely. I think yeah, you um, seem happy about that. So, wow. It's it, it, in, in some sense, it's, uh, I think it's long term healthy for the ecosystem for yeah. the shakeout to happen. Um, you have, you know, I'll just give you a, a concrete example. Any, you know, the, the classic Series A of the last few years um, raised, maybe they raised like 20, 20 million on a um, $100 million valuation, you know, a company with like a million dollar in revenue. Right. If you look at the the public market comps today, you know you're raising at like um, they're being valued at like four to five x you know forward revenue. That means that million dollar SaaS business has to then grow from like call it three to ten over the next year with a story to go to twenty just to raise a flat round. And most of those companies are not going to go from one to ten in two years and have enough money left over to fundraise at that point. So th I think there's going to be a massive shakeout of companies who either they're just going to have to accept down rounds or, you know, um, um, and layoffs um, or, um, you know, or, or got to go out of business. So I think we are, we are in store. And, and by the way, this is much more cute at the later stages. I think, you know, there, are, there are lots of people who believe that, you know, at least half of unicorns um, of which have exploded over the last few years. Um, these are unicorns, that, you know, companies valued at a billion dollars or more, at least half of those companies may go out of business. You know, so I, I think it's um, it's definitely um, now I'm not happy to actually see founders' life work and so many people go out of business, but I do think that the um they were those were um, unhealthy market conditions in the first place, and I think that it's probably a healthy reset where we're coming back to normal now as opposed to um, having some you know deep um, deep punitive recession. Uh, where you know it's like a terrible time to to build tech startups. If anything, I think we're resetting back to um, you know what was what was a, a more healthy market environment. Um, you know, kind, kind of call it a decade before. Um, no choice, right? Because if you don't have that cheap capital now, because you know with you know the interest rates, the way Powell is going to have it, uh, you're you're not going to have access to that money to just like you did before. So there's no way they're going to keep that funding coming in at the level it was before. So they're, they're kind of stuck. They're in a bad space. Mm -hmm. And I got to tell you, covering these and writing about these and, and you know, folks and, uh, you know, speaking to them, great people, smart people, wonderful people, you know, same things you, you don't want to see them, you know, you know, in a bad space, but it just didn't make sense. A lot of times, like the money, like you're saying, the amount of money they raise, the amount of money they're spending, the revenue or lack thereof 
profits, forget about profits. Like, wait, this doesn't add up. Like if there's a, if there's a, you know, a crypto winter or something that goes wrong, there's nothing there to save them. And it was just always to me, you know, again, looking from the outside, looking in, it's like, that's such a, wow, you got to have big, excuse my language, big balls to take those risks. Cause like it could go wrong so fast. And it just, I didn't make, I, I, I couldn't process that. Cause like you, you would think that there would be some, you know, safety nets, but I guess that's not how it works. You, you, you swing for the fences, I guess, in this, in this space. Yeah. Right? Yeah. Look, to, to build, I would say that for most uh, investors who joined venture capital over the last five years, um, the ones who made the most money were the ones who piled into the sexiest names at almost any price. And so it was, um, it's a behavior that was self-reinforcing in many ways, mm -hmm. if you really wanted to. And of course, like, you know, you're talking about venture careers where the average, you know, um, it's, it's possible that, you know, um, 80, 90% of investors are gone after two to three years where the, the actual outcomes happen 10 to 15 years later. Right. Mm -hmm. So there's, there's a little bit of a disconnect on like, what do I need to show, right. To, to show that like, I'm a good venture investor well ahead of companies actually, you know, um, realizing money, right, right, returning money to investors. Uh, and in that market environment, um, it was, um, it was a pretty lucrative strategy to just pile into these, these really sexy names that continually get marked up. Um, so it was on some sense, um, rational behavior for people to do this. And then of course, all of that had a knock-on effect to the companies themselves to grow at any cost and be one of those sexy names to get value, you know, at a hundred. So that's the kind of world that we had lived in. And that's part of the reason why I think this is such a healthy reset for, for everyone, for companies, founders, you know, and investors who are now learning like, Hey, let's, let's actually prioritize, you know, unit economics, profitability, um, things that, you know, you might think are like, um, Basics. It, it sounds silly to you, like like you know, very of very hard. But um, it wasn't, it wasn't, you know, for all the reasons I mentioned, it wasn't necessarily the case for for many years. I mean, I, I wonder if there was this sense of oh, the market is so hot. I know later on, Tiger or SoftBank or all these other folks are gonna bid it up, mm -hmm. and so maybe even on the seed or early stage there's a loosening of diligence, right? Because you're just hoping that later on, oh, well, these 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 startups are gonna have to raise every two years or even three years. And mm -hmm. um, these later stages are gonna bid it up. So I, I, I can, you know, sh tell my LPs, I, I, I did well, right? Like we have these unicorns now, or, um, you know, so SoftBank is on the balance sheet now, right? Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah. When you invest in private markets, there's no um, there's no market forces that hold um, that hold you accountable to marks. If that makes sense, like right. nobody can short sell the stock, nobody can freely trade the stock at a different price. And so, if somebody out there is willing to market, like a tiger or, or Koti or what have you, is willing to market the company at you know outrageous prices, um, you know it's it's going to, you're going to look really good on paper um, if you're investing at the early stages. Uh, so yeah, it's, it's, um, I don't know. It's, it was um, definitely, um, definitely uh, excited to kind of get back to, 
uh, a little bit outside of that, because I think as an investor, if you are prioritizing kind of, you know, um, companies that have a pathway to profitability, much more uh, sustainable and during businesses, um, you probably, you've probably suffered uh, on paper gains over the last, you know, few years. Um, so I think, you know, this would be, this will be a, a, a welcome return for more disciplined investors to put it that way. Got it. I, I appreciate your advice and your, your insights and in, into how like something that seems so negative, right? When you hear hiring freezes and budget cuts and layoffs and reset valuations or slashed valuations, even uh, how there could still be a silver lining, right? Where we can actually see that the high quality companies and um, the industries and products that are worth having and using. Yes. So, so, so thanks so much, Wade, for coming on the show. Yeah, thanks so much for having me. That's it for The Blind Ambition. If you enjoyed the show, please leave us a five-star rating and a review. And don't forget to subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Thanks for listening.